0: I said, I, I don't want anesthesia for this. I'll stay awake. It's no big deal. So I was actually awake from my appendectomy. They just like gave me a little spinal and that was it. I was fine. Welcome to episode 55 of About IBD. I'm Amber Tresca.
1: I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis at age 16 and had two-step J-pouch surgery 10 years later. I'm the person behind AboutIBD.com and the About IBD social media platforms. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. My guest is Danielle O'Connor. Danielle and I actually have a lot in common. We were diagnosed young prior to biologics coming on the scene and before several of the laws that protect us, such as the Family Medical Leave Act and the Affordable Care Act were passed. Danielle also has a J-pouch and for the most part she lived the life she wanted, but the complications from IBD kept coming. She spent years in and out of hospitals until she could get back to her work as a special education teacher. Learn how Danielle dealt with the stress of living with ulcerative colitis over the years and what advice she has for young people with IBD who may be considering a career in teaching. Danielle, welcome to the show. Thank you. I want to talk to you about what it was like to work as a special education teacher and living through having UC and then having a J-pouch. But first, I wonder if you would tell me a little bit about your diagnosis and how your symptoms started and then the surgeries that you had and where you are today with your disease.
0: Okay, Um, As a young child, I always had uh, some sort of issues with my stomach where it was painful, where I either couldn't go to the bathroom or I had the runs. I eventually got diagnosed from about maybe 10 years on of age, in my age, I started to have bleeding rectally. And I went from doctor to doctor to doctor and suffered through all sorts of basically invasive procedures as colonoscopies as procto you know sigmoidoscopies and those types of things um barium enemas uh you know completely wide awake And back in the day cuz I'm 56 there was no mom allowed in the office with you no nurse allowed in the office it was you and the doctor and I went like they took me to uh, Cornell. They took me to all sorts of places in the city because I live in New York. Nobody found out. So finally, my mother had a friend who had Crohn's disease and she said, oh, she loves this Dr. Lerner and Shepherd, right near where I lived in Malvern in Valley Stream. So I said, you know what? I'm desperate. Let me just try. So I went to Dr. Seymour Lerner. And he discovered what was wrong with me. I was about 16 or 17 years old. And he's like, oh, you have um, ulcerative proctitis because I suppose it was just in the very beginning at that point of my tail, you know, my anal area. So he treated me for a while and um, it would go, I would go on steroids and I would take uh, Rawassa enemas and azolfedine tablets and... I you know, on and off of that when I would flare and my flares would basically would be spring or fall. That was mostly the time when it was at its worst. Fall flares always being worse than spring flares. I you know, I struggled through with him and I was able to work and I was able to enjoy my life as much as I could, you know. And I got married when I was twenty six. I met my husband at twenty-three. And right before our wedding I had started, it was autumn because we got married in November. So I started a flare and that flare was so um, strong that I remember, I honestly don't remember my wedding day. I even remember from the pictures, but I was so ill and our honeymoon was just excruciating, excruciating pain. And I just felt so almost guilty. So I remember we were living in our first apartment and I actually was too sick to work and it was a relatively new teaching job in a public school from private school, which is a big deal because, you know, benefits, pension, whatever. So I remember I was so ill, it was Christmas vacation that I kept passing out because I guess my blood was low. My crib was low. So we called Dr. Lerner. He met me at the hospital. And of course I was admitted, I was in there for over a month actually. So, so I was really new at my job. And, you know, I went back, but I think I was basically, I think that was the one time when I think I was off solids for a month, off food for a month, actually. So I was in the hospital on the steroids and whatever. And eventually I went into, you know, a point where I could eat something. And I just, it was a terrible experience. And I looked so young when I was that age that they put me in the pediatric ward. And I just remember like I it was telling you there's like this foul sort of odor when you have to use the bathroom, when you have a flare, because you're basically having this Horrible blood and pus filled fluid come out of your rectum. I remember at one point the nurses like making nasty comments about it because you had to use the, oh, craziness. So it was just, a, it was a different world. I think things have changed as far as people like not speaking about certain things and speaking about other things more gently. They used to get so annoyed at me because I, back then they, they would give me morphine shots. That's how they would control the pain. So just the pain was terrible and the shots didn't last that long. And I'm really not a person who craves medication. I like, after major surgery, I leave the hospital off all pain meds. I, I don't even take them at home. They were just like, they would get so annoyed to have to like leave what they were doing. They were like jamming it in my thigh. I never, I'm telling you, I never in my life, it was a terrible experience. And eventually I could start eating, but they kept bringing me foods that I wasn't allowed to eat, wasn't on my list. So then I, my husband or my mom or my dad or somebody would come and bring me food at the hospital that I was allowed to eat. So I got back to work, I think in the spring, and then I, um, you know, proceeded to go into remission for a, a bit, except we were trying to have a baby. And so we were going for infertility treatments. They were trying to start an IVF cycle. And what happened was it must've flared my UC. What happened was we went to The doctor, because he said, Oh, I need to speak with you guys, you know, come in, whatever. So I went in and he looks at me and goes, You have inflammatory bowel disease. I know. (laughs) I told you I do. So he said, We can't work with you because I hate to say it, but in some of the major hospitals, their statistics are a big deal. So I was like, a bad statistic. So I said, Okay, I know. So he's like, There's no way. He's like, You're all flared up. There's loops of bowel, you know, they're swollen. So of course, I was devastated. It's upsetting even thinking about it now. So I said, you know what? I guess we're not going to have a baby, and why don't we just adopt? We adopted our first little baby boy, Brian. He was a day and a half old. We picked him up at the hospital, and life was great. And when he was like seven months old, I got pregnant with our daughter, Sarah. So it was wonderful. I ended up um, having a flare during my pregnancy, so I missed some work for that. And I was also, for some reason, even though I um was retaining flu when I was pregnant. I was chronically dehydrated. So I used to get a lot of aggravation from my one assistant principal at that point, because he say it was so unprofessional to always be drinking water. It's like, well, I'm sorry, but I'm like always thirsty. And he's like, well, like, it's just, just, you just can't be doing that. You just can't carry water bottles back and forth to the water fountain. I said, okay, you know what, what am I supposed to do? Okay. Went back to work after I had her I couldn't go to the bathroom. I had like a mini flare, like right after that. I went into a, um, like a flare. So this flare, like I kept it at bay, kept it at bay. I had to keep working. I mean, we needed the health insurance and I needed the salary. And I just had the summer vacation and my daughter was one. And then what happened was the flare got worse. So it was a full flare that just would not stop And I remember distinctly that I was bleeding so much, I eventually realized I couldn't work anymore, but you didn't get like paid benefits. There was no FMLA. There was nothing back then. So eventually what happened was I just got sicker and sicker and I just kept needing so much blood. And I went to my gastro, Dr. Lerner, my savior who figured out what was wrong with me, and he said, listen, he goes, I cannot just keep giving you two units of blood. I actually got to the point where I'd call him. I'd say, Dr. Lerner, I'm so weak. I need blood. He's like, all right, just go to the ER. I'll set you up. Like he just knew I knew, just like put it in my arm and they'd give me a couple of units. So I, he said, I think you should consider meeting this doctor at Mount Sinai who operated on my niece's husband and he had the colitis and he had this surgery and he has J pouch and he doesn't have a bag and whatever, or else you should try immunosuppressives. And I wouldn't do it. I was just fearful of trying that. I just, I don't know what it was. It just scared me. So what I did was I called his office and said, listen, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I need to schedule surgery with him. So I want you to do me a favor, just schedule the surgery. I'll come in and I'll meet him before. And I seriously (laughs) scheduled the surgery. I met him and you know, it was a three, it was a three part surgery. because I was so ill. So I had some issues with the surgery. I was out of work for a very long time. And what happened was I was so sick when I was out with the bleeding and the surgeries that I couldn't take care of the kids. And I had to pay for my health insurance because these things cost a fortune. And like, besides that, I can't even tell. It's like 25 or $26,000 in debt, maybe more. So I had my surgeries and I was out of work the whole time. My, My work granted me the privilege of being out, you know, they didn't have to give me that year. They could have fired me. So that was what happened. And I had my J pouch and I, we did it all. Like my daughter's second birthday was my first surgery. I remember that. And then he was so good because he had little children, my kid's age. We waited until after Halloween to have the actual J pouch built in and eventually I had my takedown surgery and I went back to work and I did pretty well for a while. And I had only one issue, I would say, in my younger teaching years when I was supposed to get my tenure and I had been out sick, I told you when I was first married. So my assistant principal was lovely. She's like you and me, a fitness running exercising person. And on lunch, she was one of the people who would meet in the gym and we would all kind of walk and work out. So she said, No, I they weren't gonna tenure me because they're like, Well, she's got, you know, she's got a chronic illness. Like, why would we ever tenure someone who's gonna have you know medical problems. So she said, I told them that um, she herself actually had um, ovarian cancer, ovarian cancer. She's like, I told them that you're worthy of being tenured and that you work hard and that you're great with the kids. And she said, and I, to- I insisted that they had to do it, that I was telling them they had to. So thank goodness to this lovely Mrs. Kliegerman. She made sure I got my tenure, which was great because, you know, I basically wasn't really, really sick again. You were basically working
1: this whole time while you were trying to manage your ulcerative colitis. Remind me what year it was because it was before, like I remember when FMLA and all of that was instituted and it was so helpful for people like us.
0: It was so helpful. My first child was born in 1993 and there was no FMLA. And I know for a fact because adopted you don't get maternity leaves for adopted children, only for birth-given children, because a newborn, I feel like, can be raised by a wolf. But <laughs> no matter whether or not they <laughs> just send them off to a wolf.
1: I mean, he was a day and a half old, right? Is that what you said? A day and a half yeah. old.
0: A day and a half. We picked him up at like a day and a half old in the hospital. Yeah.
1: And you got no maternity leave. And I'm assuming your husband didn't have any paternity leave either.
0: No, there was no such thing as paternity leave. This is the, this is the United States. No. No, not back then. (laughs) So, yeah. So, I actually got to take three weeks, I think, with him unpaid because that's like all I could basically afford to do. Mm -hmm. Three weeks. So, that was 93. Sarah was born in 94. So, by the time she was born, I'm pretty sure there was some kind of FMLA. I could keep my health benefits for three months unpaid, but I was out for like almost two years sick. How did they handle this when you were out? What they used to do was they would hire substitutes when it was a longer term thing. You know, they would hire like a permanent sub maybe if you're going to be out for a certain length of time, which I didn't actually, actually, I never got any kind of a hard time about being out with my situation until um, this last surgery, this last year before I decided, you know, I was going to get everything repaired that needs to be repaired but i did used to have one of my big issues is using the bathroom because when you teach special education and the kids have really serious issues you can't um you can't just excuse yourself to a bathroom
1: in the beginning though when you had the uc did it ever occur to you in that way especially when you were going to college and getting your teaching degree did you ever think this might be challenging if I need to run out of,
0: run out of the room. <laughs> no, I didn't actually think that because you know what? Um, what happened was when I first started teaching, like I said, I didn't have a major flair until after I got married and I was already teaching before that. So it never occurred to me. I did know, though, because truth be told, my bachelor's degree was in fashion merchandising and marketing. And I did know I didn't have like, not that I'm not energetic, I am overly energetic, but I knew I didn't have the stamina to do the kind of job where I wasn't going to get to like have regular sleeping hours because retail is a crazy business. So I did know I couldn't do that. But it never occurred to me, especially in special needs, that you would be denied the privilege of using a bathroom if you needed one. Because it's sort of opposite to what you're supposed to be doing, taking care of other people. It's an interesting situation. It is because... That is a big deal,
1: not being able to go to the bathroom during the day. Like you said, you can't just leave the room. Right. Did that ever come up with your superiors that they may have said to you? How are you going to continue on here with this?
0: I actually, I have to tell you something. I got a really big stroke of luck in that situation because what happened was I was actually sent to, sent to a program all different in all different school districts. And I was basically like flying solo. So I only saw my administrators here and there. And I worked with the most amazing assistants that would just, you know, cover for me if I needed to use the bathroom. So I never had to ask permission for that.
1: How is it with your J pouch with mine? I can certainly hold it. I don't need to go to the bathroom right away, but it does become more and more uncomfortable as time goes on.
0: It does. I actually, I don't know if I told you, um, I I did say I had a fistula pull down, which reversed. So I have a a transvaginal fistula. So what happens to me is if I need to go to the bathroom and I can't excuse myself, which was like the last, my last year of work, what happened was I would um, try to just like hold it in or just not eat, like try not to eat anything. So that's how I would handle that. If I was in a situation, I would just eat Nothing. And I would just drink water until um, maybe like later in the day, like one-ish or have like a tiny little piece of cheese or something small because I get lightheaded. So I would try to just do that. But um, what happens is the fistula then starts to act out and it starts to drain. And that's, you know, it's a kind of a nasty situation. <laughs> so you either, even if you're not using the bathroom to go to the bathroom, you you're you're kind of, incapable of cleaning up after the fistula drainage and it's an embarrassing and uncomfortable situation and it's painful, you know, and sitting still or sitting when you have a fistula draining is, it's kind of painful when it does. And standing is worse because you don't know if it's going to decide to just like leak. So that's an uncomfortable situation. And if you feel like afraid to use the bathroom. Or to you know excuse yourself, especially if you're in a situation where you're working with new strange people, you just kind of, I don't know, suck it up, I guess, and wear bring changes of stuff to wear.
1: Right, bring a change of clothes with you.
0: Yeah, which
1: is, I mean, you know, it's a shame to have to live your life like that. That's not right either. So you are too young to be retired, but you are retired. I'm, I'm not that young.
0: I actually did retire. <laughs> I. Tell- I just, um, I actually did have another, um, several surgeries actually done. And I knew because of my last time being out for so long, I knew that I was going to maybe have a lot of -of out-of-pocket expenses. So I waited and waited and collected my sick days until I had enough days to cover myself and my family because I didn't want to leave them like broke. You know, because you can't really pay off medical debt on on a retirement salary. That's for sure. And we were never wasteful because you never know when you're going to get sick. I mean, my husband's had more than his fair share of medical things as well. I got news for you. I had something that had to be fixed. I got a. I kept getting bowel obstructions from two different situations, so that's another thing that's pretty painful. And I would honestly be at work with bowel obstructions sometimes, and just because I can't not save the days because I know I need these surgeries and I know. They're going to maybe be out of pocket, but I actually got an injury at work many years back when a child was, um, we were just transporting him upstairs because he was out of control. So transporting him up to a blue room and I got a push backwards and I grabbed onto the railing and it made like a tear in my abdominal wall between where my midline scar is and my old stoma was. That was an issue that that had to be repaired because what was happening is my intestines were kind of, if I would bend over, it'd be so painful. Like, especially it's so crazy. Sometimes in the bathroom, if you have to like bend over for some reason, that's when for some reason, that position would always like twist kink and catch your intestines in there. And it would give this like horrendous spasm. I can't explain it. And sometimes it wouldn't undo. And that's when you would get an obstruction, which I have only landed in the hospital once for the obstructions. I've been very lucky. But I knew I needed to get that taken care of, and I had a mechanical type of obstruction going on too, just like two different types. So that had to be repaired. That wall had to be repaired. But the other thing is from my original surgery, my muscle wall was never closed. So I knew I needed to get that done because I'm like literally my whole life feeling like I'm falling out of myself. And you could reach in and almost touch my bones if you wanted to up on the top part. So this last year, I ended up getting you know, repairs done and all that. And that's when I started to get a little bit of a hard time from work because I had um, a couple of conditions that developed from the steroids I had. Um, I have high eye pressure glaucoma and I was almost completely blind from cataracts because for whatever reason, they decided to hit me and just continue to hit me. So I needed that done.
1: I was diagnosed in 1989 and in those days it was steroids and sulfasalazine and that was all you had. And it wasn't until I feel like 1998 when Remicade was approved that they sort of started getting more away from the steroids. So how long do you think you were on and off steroids?
0: On and off steroids, probably from when I was like 16 until I was 34. Yeah, a long time. Yeah, but I wasn't always like. If I wasn't flared, I was fine. I was like with my colitis. I was either perfect or horrible. It was like one or the other. I
1: feel like maybe you did always have inflammation. Do you feel like that's true? Like it was always there, but you were you were sort of functioning anyway.
0: I have a very high threshold for pain, and I don't know if that I taught myself that or it's when I read about that. And um, I'm very judgmental of people who don't suck it up. I, I know it's bad. I am. It's terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know what though? I, I kind of have the same thing like
1: with healthy people. Sometimes I'm like, really? I don't feel so great that sometimes my empathy doesn't extend because I'm a little bit like, come on, you can deal with this.
0: Can't you? (laughs) Seriously. I actually had my appendix taken out awake because that was, that was right before I had my J patch. I had an appendicitis and I I was, I worked that day. I worked that day. I took care of the kids after work. I went jogging that evening with my girlfriend, who's a nurse. And then I took a ride with her. It was like the last day. So I took a ride with her to um, this hospital where she worked in Far Rockway. She's like, maybe I have an appendicitis. It's, I'm like, it's a little sore. I don't know. So <laughs> I know. Like, I know. Oh, my gosh. So was, the doctor's like, I said, I, I don't want anesthesia for this. I'll stay awake. It's no big deal. So I was actually awake for my appendectomy. They just like gave me a little spinal and that was it. I was fine.
1: I'm floored. Like, I've never heard of this before. I'm totally floored right now.
0: (laughs) You go through enough colonoscopies as a 10-year-old.
1: As a child, (laughs) right. I know. It's almost like maybe you don't have any nerve endings left. Maybe that's what happened.
0: (laughs) Maybe. You just learn to tune tune it out with your brain.
1: Tune it out, yeah. So let me ask you this, though. For anyone who's coming up and is diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease, and as you know, it tends to happen between the ages of 16 and 25, What do you think about wanting to go into teaching and especially into teaching younger children like you did?
0: It's funny because the whole teaching world has changed so much in the past couple of years and there's a lot of pressure on it now, on the kids now to like, from the teachers really. I mean, when I say kids, I mean the the teachers, the young teachers, there's a lot of pressure for your students to make, meet certain milestones. And I think that started to really stress me out a lot. And I was in my head a lot and there's a tremendous amount of paperwork and there's not really a break when you're teaching. I mean, I honestly have to tell you, I never took lunch. I know you're supposed to socialize, but I would just basically work. And I was working with the documentation that was going on in special ed. I was going to say, I was probably working like 60 to 75 hour weeks, most likely my last couple, like three, four years of Five of work, so I would say um, the downtime on your vacations is great. But I never worked in the quote unquote real world other than maybe you know when I was younger. So I don't know how they are with using bathrooms and that kind of thing. But I think you just sort of need to maybe I don't know I hate to say, it, but I used to kind of keep it secret. Like unless I was on my deathbed, I wouldn't talk about it at all. I'm really like, oh, I'm fine. It's fine. Oh yeah. Right. Oh, I'm fine. I'd never give you know. Let, let anybody think there was anything wrong so i don't think it's going to be the easy thing you think it's going to be and you do have to remember if you have an inflammatory bowel disease if you have a pouch like a, a j-pouch and you have to use the bathroom frequently so if you go into teaching maybe you'll be better off if you did something along the lines of like speech where you're taking kids at different periods or um maybe an upper grade where when they leave the room to shift classes, you can go to the bathroom. Obviously, if you're on a colitis flare, it doesn't matter. I mean, you can't even barely make the bathroom. But just if you have like any of these medical things, I think it would be much easier on you if you weren't with little kids that need constant supervision.
1: Right. So maybe being a classroom teacher is more challenging if you're living with inflammatory bowel disease versus, like you said, like speech, or I'm just thinking of my own kids' schools and sort of the
0: support staff. Right, exactly, because they are free to use the bathroom. What
1: I'm hearing a lot of times, actually, is it's not always like the bowel stuff. Like it's this extraintestinal stuff that goes on that really pulls them away and, and is causing them to have more surgeries or to have medication side effects or things like that. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. No, that definitely. I mean, I was like I said, I was lucky I wasn't really on meds. And the women I work with, I'm telling you my assistants, I cannot even tell you the most wonderful human beings like blessed beyond belief to work with these women that were just like so understanding and so good. I knew I had all this medical stuff to go through. And that's like the one thing I'm thinking like, oh, great. Like, what's it going to be like? Am I going to be able to use the bathroom? Can I not use the bathroom? Is it going to drain out? It's rarely anxiety producing. And I have to say, I really escaped it. I honestly could have never, ever done what I, you know, lasted that long if I had been in the situation I was in this past year.
1: What about standing with someone through their tough time? Right. You know, you needed to have surgery. Okay, you're going to have the surgery and you'll be on your way to healing and then you'll come back. I mean, how about you see someone
0: through that, right? I do. I totally agree. And I, I don't understand it. I don't know. It's sort of like you're, I don't know if you're damaged goods or you're just, I don't know. You just have to always like look. I mean, it's so funny because I always like try to make sure at work, like I'm dressed like really well and my hair was always done. And like I looked really together and my room looked really together, like dog and pony always. Yes. That's just a big part of it. It's when I see some of these young women with their UC. I, I saw you at that um, screening for that movie and um, everybody looks great. I mean, their hair is all beautiful, their makeup is all done. Everybody looks so <laughs> You walk in there. <laughs> You know, it's
1: so funny that you bring that up, because that's so true. And it it, I don't think it's anything that I like, I know, I haven't like sat down and really thought about it. But it's totally true. In that, I was diagnosed when I was 16. And I mean, I was in and out of school. And I dealt with problems being in and out of school and with my grades and with my teachers. And so Yeah, you did sort of go to this level where you felt like, I need to look like I'm not sick. Right. Even today, I don't leave the house without makeup on. You know what I mean? It's just, and it's not like anyone ever said anything or told you anything or, or, you know, wanted you to be like that. But you're totally correct about that. There is this... I feel almost like a need to sort of overcorrect and prove that you're capable in some way.
0: It's true. And and like to be like the top at what you do and make sure your kids succeed if you're a teacher. And as far as um, the other thing I have difficulty with is not using time when I have it, when I feel well, you always get an idea. You never know when you're going to be sick. So let me do this, 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 and, um, get so much done and try to fit two days into one. Because what if I don't have many days? Cause like, what if one of these days it's the last obstruction or one of these days, you know, I want to like make sure I use every precious minute I have alive on this earth and never waste it. So, which is probably also just another crazy pressure. That we put on ourselves. I mean, who really cares? Like, honestly, if you're not wearing a great outfit, your hair, makeup. <laughs> Probably
1: nobody. nobody. I don't know why. I don't it's wear makeup just... to
0: the gym, though. That has to be said. That I don't do.
1: Um, Do I? <laughs> I guess it depends on what I did earlier in the day as to whether or not. Yeah. yeah that'll so speaking of the gym, I did want to ask you one last thing about running and exercising Uh with your pouch and how you have found that to be.
0: I have to say, even throughout my surgeries, when I was home and the kids were little, exercise is something that always makes me feel strong. And if I feel, if I'm strong, I'm always like physically strong, then I'm better able to handle anything. Like I even actually exercise. I went to the beach in a two piece with my, um, with my stoma, I would just, I would just put like a little pouch on. I actually had two stomas because my, um, that connection that you have on the bottom there, when you get a J pouch, wouldn't, it wouldn't die. It just kept draining. So I had two, uh, two devices for my, for for like a, several months, three, four months. So, um, I did everything. I, I would get up early cause I couldn't really go to the gym at that point. I would get up early. I would do my workout tapes. Um, now I go to the gym. The thing I have to worry is that I didn't do something that would overtax my abdomen now. That's my thing. And that's apparently a permanent thing since they closed me up. I'm not doing any more abdominal exercises, but I always feel that my immune system is in better shape if I'm running, if I'm strong. Like I feel like it keeps it in check and it keeps my whole chemical balance inside my brain in check too.
1: I agree with you. Completely. I will do anything to be able to get my workout in. Everything else is in a shambles. I know. But
0: <laughs> I went for a run. It's okay. but, you know? <laughs> yeah, Exactly. No, you have to do that. You know why? If you don't take care of yourself first and you already have a, an illness, it's just, it's just, there's nothing else you can do for somebody in the family. You have to take care of yourself in order to be well enough mentally and physically to take care of your family. And the IBD, I feel like, Crohn's, colitis, whatever, steals so much from us, so much. Like, why does it need to steal away our strength and our fitness and our energy? You have to put yourself first in that respect, I think. And that, I feel, is the one thing I do to always put myself first. I will always take care of that part of me.
1: Danielle, that's perfect advice. You always have to take care of yourself. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. I think you've given me a lot to think about in terms of a career and what can be done and maybe some of the things that we can think about for the future for protecting people with IBD at their jobs. And so thank you so much for all of your transparency and for taking me through all of the many things that have gone on during your disease journey.
0: Thank you so much, Amber, be well. Hey, super listener. Special thanks to
1: Danielle O'Connor for talking with me about her disease journey and for being so open about what it's like to manage a career along with severe ulcerative colitis. You can find Danielle on Twitter and Instagram where she is a tireless supporter of other people with IBD. After hearing her story, I'm even more impressed by her positive attitude and her zest for life because she has been through so much. I will put all of her social media information in the show notes. You can also find more information about everything we discussed on the episode 55 page on aboutibd.com, as well as my original written content and links to all of my social media. I love bringing you this podcast and you can support me in return by sharing it with others and by leaving a review of my show in your favorite podcast app. Here's a taste of what's coming up next on About IBD. And it was just two years of complete hell and, you know, as I said, I kept deteriorating and and fading away basically down to 120 pounds. So then those next two years, I did nothing. In fact, I sold the bike soon after because I couldn't justify it sitting around gathering dust when I knew I wasn't going to be riding it anytime soon so thanks for listening and remember until next time I want you to know more about IBD